we're going we're gonna to start a new sermon series today. Uh, and I'm going to call this sermon series, We the Church. We the Church. And I want to cover a couple of different things, actually four different specific topics that center about who the church is, what we're called to do. So before we jump into that, let's, uh, let's start out with just a word of prayer really quick. Father, we are so grateful for your presence in our lives, God, for your continual goodness. We're thankful, Lord God, that you are here this morning. And Lord God, you've come to minister to each of us. You've come to encourage us, to strengthen us. Lord, to remind us of the gospel, to remind us, Jesus, that you came and you gave your life for us so that we could live. But you have called us out from among this world, Lord, to be filled with your spirit, to be the very dwelling place of God. Lord, to represent your kingdom and your image and everything that you are, God, the church is called to do that. So I pray, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, Father, you would speak to us and you would transform us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I talk about the church, we the church, I'm not really just talking about an organization or just a few pastors. I'm not even talking about, obviously, this building or, or our church. I, I'm talking about something universal, but I'm talking about a gathering. The church in the New Testament is a Greek word called ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It is the ones that Jesus has chosen. He's called out from among this world. He has redeemed them by his blood. They have placed faith in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he was a perfect sinless man that was raised again from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, death, hell, and Satan himself, and granting us eternal life. And so we're not, church is never, when we talk about church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about the gathering of people who gather around around Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross, and we gather to worship God and be filled with all the fullness of God himself. And so the church, I know you understand, I know it's a big deal, but the church is always broken. The church always has de defects. I need you to understand that the church is not perfect. The kingdom of God is perfect. The church is not perfect. But you need to understand that God has chosen that the church is the only vessel on earth through which the kingdom of God is revealed. And sometimes that leaves us in a conundrum because here's the thing. I have a high view of the church. I don't walk around criticizing the church. I don't walk around putting down the church. I recognize that the church is broken. I recognize that the church has flaws. I recognize that our church has flaws. I recognize that we're not perfect, but you ain't going to find me on Facebook tearing down the church because it is the bride of Christ. It is the vessel through which God has said, look, they're not perfect. They're redeemed by the blood. They're caught out from the world just like the rest of the world. You cannot expect these people to be perfect. But when they get their eyes focused on God and on Jesus Christ and they are rooted and grounded and standing on the solid foundation that is Christ, they are the vessel that I have chosen in this world through which the kingdom of God is going to be revealed. When you see God revealed, it is most likely through the people of God gathered together in Jesus' name to do what he has called us to do. You don't find it just anywhere out in the world. The church is still the hope of the world. 
The church is still the hope of the world. And so the church of Jesus Christ, let me give you a few things as we start out and lay a little foundation. But the church is, number one, the body of Christ. This means that all across the globe, believers are a part of the body of Christ. Jesus Christ came to this world. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. He reached out to prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and drew them into a relationship with God the Father. And when He left, He sent His Spirit so that He would no longer just be one man on the earth wreaking havoc against the powers of darkness, but that he would be in the bodies and in the hearts and in the minds of millions of people across the globe that would be his body here in the earth. So one of us may be the arm, one of us may be the leg, one of us may be the eye, and one of us may be the mouth, but praise God, all together corporately we make up the fullness of the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We're the one that is intimately in love with Jesus and in relationship with him, and therefore we are his elect and chosen, we are the wheat, we're the beloved, we're the true Israel of God. Paul said not all who are Israel are Israel. The true Israel is manifested in those who have entered into a faith covenant with Jesus Christ. We are the family of God. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. We take care of one another. We support one another. We are the gate of heaven. We are the only, once again, we are the only entity on earth through which heaven is released on earth. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit individually or I am a temple of the Holy Spirit individually. When Paul addressed the church at Corinth. He said, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He was speaking to them corporately. He said, when you meet and you gather corporately, yes, the Holy Spirit abides and dwells inside of your body. But see, what you don't understand is that you as the corporate gathering, elect of God, when you come together, guess what? You are the dwelling place of God. You are where God has chosen to dwell. And so when we come together in worship and we gather together, God says, that's the place that I want to be. The church, my people, the ones that I've called out from among this world. Acts 2.47, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord, and here's the thing, we've seen people added to the church, haven't we? We've been seeing people baptized. I told somebody in 2021 we baptized more people than I've ever seen in a year, and sadly I don't keep count, probably should, but we baptized a lot of people last year, glory to God, and this year we're continuing to do it, and why are we doing it? Because God is adding to the church daily those who are being saved, and I need you to understand that I've not only been, been saved by the grace of God, but I'm currently being saved by the grace of God, and the church is the place where we are being saved. You need to understand that. Y'all are asleep this morning, I'm telling you. I'm Y'all going to get in this here in a minute. Praise God. Y'all stayed out late last night. Y'all, I went to bed last night at 8.30, y'all. I'm ready to go. It was still, it was, the sun was still out last night when I got in bed. I told her, I said, I'm getting into bed. Try not to wake me up. You know what I'm saying? Sun was still out. I went down. So I'm feeling good this morning. Looks like y'all didn't. I don't know. <laughs> Needless to say, <laughs> I got you down there, Matt. Uh, Matt woke up at 9.45 this morning. No, I'm kidding. But see, the church is where we're bit. So here's what I'm saying is you can't say, and people say this all the time, well, you know, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. I just don't like organized religion. That's a cop out for them to not be a part of the church and the body of Christ. Because if you have been saved, then you are being saved. And if you are being saved, then God has added you to the church. 
And if you've been added to the church, that is an indicator that your salvation is real because you are uniquely connected to the body of Christ. I never wanted to go to church until I got saved and then I was compelled to be in church. I went to church, found out some people were weird, but it didn't stop me from being part of them. Amen. Because I had the Holy Spirit inside of me and God says, this is where you will not only, this is not, you've been saved, Clay, but this is where I'm going to continue to do my saving work in you among crazy people, among people that struggle, among people that are really weird, among people that throw fits around the altar. I'm going to save you and continue to save you among some people that you may have not just hung out with on your own because when I save you, I call you to be a part of this entity that I've called the church. And it is my bride, and you're called to love it. And you're called to be a part of it. So the visibility of salvation is this. You see who God has planted in the church. If I want to know somebody that's really saved, I see it by a transformed life, and I see it through their commitment to the body of Christ. Can you be committed to the body of Christ and not be saved? Yeah, most likely you probably could. But the greatest fruit is a transformed life. One that starts to begin to show a repentance from sin and start to look more like Jesus. And you see people that want to be involved in the church even when it is difficult. Matter of fact, even more when it's difficult. Even more when it's difficult. There's a commitment because our role is determined by our relationships and our relationships require commitment. My role to Andrea, uh, about eight years ago, the most beautiful bride in the world walked down the aisle there where we, were, where we were about to get married. You know what I'm saying? And that happened. But see, my relationship to her required a commitment, didn't it? And each, each, each relationship that we have, my relationship to Naomi as her father, your relationship to your children, it requires a covenant commitment. Your relationship to the church, get this, requires a covenant commitment. You don't get to break up with the church just because it hurts you once or twice. I know people get church hurt. I'm sorry about that. I'm sad about that. Guess what? You serve a Lord and a Savior who heals you of every wound you'll ever experience, who gives you the enablement by His grace to forgive those who have offended or hurt you and to walk in love toward them even when you're hurt. And so this is the God that we serve and we are to be committed to serve one another in love, to refuse, to gossip, to pray for the health of our church, to welcome others into the family, to participate in worship and community, to attend and give faithfully, to encourage others and to live a godly lifestyle. That's the commitment that we have to the church. We say, I'm going to do it because I'm in covenant with this body. And so in this series, I made a really cool sermon slide and we were kind of bragging on me this morning about it. Amen. But, but we, the church, we go in a lot of different directions. Honestly, I'm covering four basic directions. But I want to cover our roles, four different roles that we have. Number one, our role with God, which we worship up first and foremost. Our role with Satan and the world, in that sense, is we conquer down. We are to enforce the victory of Jesus Christ. And that comes first and foremost through our place of worship. We're not supposed to go out into the world until we have our relationship and our worship with God down pat. We understand who God is and who God has called us to be. And from that place, we enforce the victory of Jesus Christ over the devil in this earth. And we conquer. 
From that place we overflow. He said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water and we will go out into all the world to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we come inside among one another on Sunday service or on Wednesday meetings or in small groups and we're called to build one another up and edify one another. So we worship up, we conquer down, we reach out and we edify within. And this is what the church is called to do. And so I want to cover that over the next four weeks. But our first and our most primary role as the church of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is worship. What do we worship? I say this all the time. I've said this before. But do you know that everybody on planet Earth worships? You're designed for worship. And therefore, even if you don't believe in God, if you are an atheist, you still worship. And you ultimately become what you worship. What you put your heart on, what you put your affections on, what you spend your time on, what you meditate on, what you have submitted to. Because when we think about worship, we think about music first and foremost. Well, what's worship? Well, it's in three songs we play at the beginning of service. Can I say that's an aspect of worship and praise, but it is not what worship truly is. Worship is about who and what you have submitted your heart to. What have you submitted to your life to in such a way that you say, what that says goes in my life? And i got to be honest with you, a lot of us, see, see the, the scripture in Romans 1 talks about this. It says, because we rejected God and we did not worship and glorify Him as God, God has handed us over and we see the, the truth decay at an all-time high in our world and, and what people think is right and what people think is wrong. And it really comes down to, at the end of the day, a worship issue. So what I'm trying to tell you this morning is you can't say you are a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth just because you simply like Maverick City music and when you drive down the road you can kind of jam to it. <laughs> Amen. Y'all ain't offended yet, are you? That's a good part of it. I thank God that I can drive down the road and listen to Maverick City music and get down to it. And you know what? I worship the Lord in my car, and that is real. I don't want to negate that fact. But if I'm doing that, but my lifestyle does not line up with the truth of God's Word, then I'm merely feeling good about what God may give me, but I'm not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Because my true worship goes past my song and it shows up in my daily behavior. My true worship goes past the lifting of my hands on Sunday morning or even my shout if I like to get down. It goes way beyond that and it shows up in how I treat others on Monday. It shows up in my sexual morality. It shows up in every day-to-day -day aspect of my life. shows up how I treat my wife and kids. shows up in every area. Worship begins to overflow. Why? Because I'm submitted to God. And if I'm worship, worshiping Him, I'm going to do what He has called me to do and what He says I ought to do. Now, here's the thing. I, I really, honestly, I didn't want to talk about this this morning, but I thought, I thought it, given the time that we're in, it's an important aspect of, of something to talk about. I was going to preach a message on abortion specifically in about six to eight weeks. And so I wasn't going to do that this morning. But given what's transpired over the last week, I want to mention just a couple of things. Because, because we live in a world where, where we're fighting and we're arguing. And sometimes even the church is adopting uh, world mentality and values. And at the end of the day, the issue is a worship issue. It's not a health care issue. All those issues are secondary. And, and maybe I'll spend way more time whenever I get a, a time to, to, to preach a full and entire message on it. But here's the thing. When the church worships faithfully, it does not adopt the morality of the world. Yeah. 
it has a completely different morality. When it worships God and understands that we are people created in the image of God. And so the issue with the world is that they don't worship God. I'm not surprised when a bunch of people out in the world are angry or upset about abortion not happening. You know why? Because they don't worship God. Without Jesus, you know what I worshipped? I worshipped myself and I worshipped sex. And I worshiped pleasure. And I was a hedonist. And then Jesus came into my life and saved me and brought me out and said, no longer are you going to worship yourself. And guess what, Clay? Your body is not your own. I have bought your body with the price of my blood. And so now you're going to honor and glorify me in both your spirit and with your body. So no longer, Clay, do you get to choose or decide what you do with your body because that body is mine. Designed for my purposes. Now I get if you want to get into politics and you say, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Libertarian or I'm a Democrat. Let me tell you something. You can be what you want to be. I am a Christian first. Just because Libertarian ethics say, well, everybody needs to do what... You know who the first Libertarian was? His name was Satan. He said, do what you want to do. And I'm not saying that's bad politics. I know somebody's going to quit church over this. Anytime, Anytime you dive into politics... What I'm trying to say is you getting to make all the decisions that you want to make or not is not the best option for you. You think that it is, but it is not. Now, throughout church history, it's very interesting because what I found is that as what we think in one sense worship has increased in the church, somehow it, morality has declined in the church. And that's, that's why it's interesting because we see this, this paradox of us singing more songs and music going more viral. But yet still I know, I know people who worship, lead worship but hold to things that in my view are counter, contradictory to Scripture. And so we believe as the, the church of Jesus Christ, right, that according to Scripture and science that life begins at, at conception. And I, I remember doing a study years ago about the church history and what they believed about abortion. And you saw from the year 33 A.D., 70 A.D., 100 A.D., 300 A.D., all the way up until currently you saw that the church consistently had a stance against abortion. So it's not something that just came up and it's not something that we just say, well, we've progressed beyond that now. No, we always held the Scripture as the true church. Matter of fact, there was a, a, something called the Didache. In A.D. 70, something, a document was written called the Didache and it was literally entitled, it, what it basically meant was the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the 12 apostles. And it was kind of like if you had a next steps book, right? People are getting saved and the church was writing documents. They had letters written which ultimately became authoritative scripture. They read them in church. But they also had this thing called the Didache which was almost like a next steps manual. So if you come to church, you're like, hey, what do y'all believe? Do y'all believe you can worship the toothless fairy in the sky or what? Like, no, here's what we believe. They wrote out, this is what we believe, this is how we should live. And here's one of the things that they said. I want to put this up. He says, in one portion, the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, 
You shall not seduce boys. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not use potions. You shall not procure an abortion nor destroy a newborn child. That was written in A.D. 70, most likely somewhere in, within the Roman Empire at that time. And one of the reasons that they wrote this specifically, if you read a lot of scholars' interpretation on it, was because Romans had about 17 different ways that you could get an abortion. And most of those ways were through actual potions, actually. You would drink something and, it would, and you would procure an abortion through that. Now, most scholars will say that when Paul the Apostle was writing the works of the flesh, it's interesting because for the word witchcraft or sorcery, he uses the word pharmakia, which is the word we get drug use from in, 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 in our world, right? It's the same word. And they believe that, that he was most likely speaking about people who would use these potions to either put a trance or spell on somebody or actually procure an abortion. Now, another thing that's so interesting about the Romans, and this is what we need to understand as the church, we're not here as the church to be mad at people who believe differently than us. They ain't been saved yet, y'all. They need to hear the gospel and experience the love of Jesus. If I weren't saved by the grace of God, I'd be thinking some of the many things that they think out there in our world. So it's not our judge to, j job to beat them up and criticize them, but to call them to repentance and show them the truth of Jesus Christ. Because my heart breaks when I see these arguments on Facebook going back and forth for the people who don't know the love of Jesus and have had an abortion. That's who my heart breaks for. Because I've, I've counseled with so many people who go through that. And they're, and they're broken and they need the forgiveness and redemption and the wiping away of their shame and pain that only comes through Jesus Christ. And we as the church have to draw people into that truth. But here's the thing. If we don't actually stand for that truth, they will never experience true healing and forgiveness. They'll be lost forever trying to justify what they've done and what has happened to them in their life and maintain the pain that is hidden deep within and so we as the church, it's so important that the church stands in truth and lovingly invites people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion produces critics and talkers, but the kingdom of God is going to produce practical help to support decisions with people. So the church, as an act of worship, I mean, here's the thing. We have to constantly be praying about not only about how do we help mothers to be or struggling single parents or how, how do we reach out and help these people make good godly decisions and how do we love them when they are in the midst of challenges and pains. We've got to support adoption. We've got to support for the foster care system. We have to actually be involved in these efforts to help people who are struggling with these situations. That's how we worship on a practical level. Amen. So... Y'all good this morning? That being said, here's the thing. The Romans believed there was a rumor that went around in, in the early church after the church had been birthed. And the rumor was that Christians were cannibals because they heard that when they met, they ate the body and the blood of their Lord Jesus Christ, which was communion. But they also had a place where they would take their babies down to the dump when they didn't want them. If a woman didn't procure an abortion, she had a child, she'd go down to this place where they dumped the babies off and they let them die there. Well, they heard that they were in the, in, the, in the church eating the body and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the time when they went down to dump the babies, guess what? There were Christians hanging out there and they would notice after they dropped the baby off, the Christian would run by and scoop up the baby and take them. They thought, man, they're going out and eating them babies. This is, this is historically uh, true. That's, that was how demented 
the minds of those people were because it was such a radically accepted practice to just simply dump your baby out by the dump. And my point is, is, is this, is that sometimes even when you love radically and you stick to truth radically, the world is not going to understand you. And that's okay. We ain't got to get mad about it. We're just going to hold on to the truth of God's Word, love people radically, and find practical ways to help people in need. And that's how we're going to demonstrate our worship. Amen. Amen. So that being said, let's move into this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. I didn't mean to preach a whole message on that topic, but listen. People have been arguing about it. I thought, you know what? I need to say something. So there we go. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 5. Coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he's speaking about the church, and the first thing he calls the church is a spiritual house. And we're not defined. The house is not a building. We are the house. You understand that? We gathered in this room. It's not this building, this beautiful metal building, but it is us gathered together in the name of the Lord. We are the called out ones, and Jesus is saying, you are being built up as a spiritual house, a place in which I can dwell. And y'all know the scripture, Matthew 18, through, 18, 20. Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. When you gather in Jesus' name, see, church don't even have to be here. You can get two or three brothers and sisters in your living room, and guess who will show up right in the midst of you? Jesus Christ will show up in the midst of you and you can have church in your living room because it is any time any place that two or three gather together and say we're here to worship Jesus he gathers in the middle of them so he calls us a spiritual house and he calls us a holy priesthood now priests worship a God and they've been there have been priests throughout the history of time and they're mediators between God and man but the thing about a priest is that a priest would always offer up sacrifices in order to affect the relationship between man and God. There always had to be a sacrifice if there was a priest. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is literally the offering up of your life to God. It's saying, you know what? It's, it, it goes past the songs we sing in the hands that we lift, even though that's an aspect of it. It is you being willing to lay down anything and everything in order to pursue Jesus. Whatever it costs, you're willing to lay it down in order to give your life over fully to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm no longer my own. I'm not making my own decisions. I'm not making my career choices. I'm not deciding what I do with my kids. I, you are now the Lord of my life, and I will offer up my body as a living sacrifice. You take control, God. That's where the heart of worship truly is. And so as I dive into this, I want to give you three quick words, three, three words in the Old Testament that have to do with our worship. One's tabernacle, another one is tent, and another one is temple. And these are very important, and I'm going to break them down as we go through this, but it begins to outline for us what worship is truly about. And so in the tabernacle of Moses, if you remember the tabernacle of Moses in the Old Covenant, when they came out from Egypt, 
The same picture of you being delivered from sin, being delivered from the bondage of Satan. You were baptized in the Red Sea. You come out, you got saved. You say, well, praise God, I'm saved. Now what? Guess what? You ended up in the wilderness. And God started to try to teach you how to truly worship Him. And it was difficult because you was all the time wanting to go back. Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? Like, like, I don't know how this ain't working out right. I thought when I got saved, it'd be easier. I thought when, it, when I got saved, I wouldn't have so much difficulty and hardship. No, you're in a wilderness season. God's trying to teach you how to worship. But the beautiful thing is, is that they built a tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness, and it was mobile. It could go anywhere they wanted to. They could pack up tent. They could, they, they could take the tabernacle, and where they went was wherever the glory of God went. In the day, you would see a pillar of, of a cloud. And at night you would see a pillar of fire. And if that fire began to move, they would pack up their tent and they would move with the fire. This is symbolic of the fact that the church, we do not move of our own volition. We move when God moves. When the fire of God is moving, when the presence and glory of God is moving, we move with the presence of God because we are following Him and He is not following us. He's not here to simply bless our endeavors. He has called us to come alongside of Him to do what He's called us to do in the world. And so they had a, and here, here's another thing I want to say. Some of you have been in a wilderness season. Some of you have been in the dark. I can promise you this, that in the presence of God, if you'll stay in the presence of God, there is a fire in the midst of your night that will lead you. And in the middle of the wilderness, there's going to be a cloud that says, you need to come this way. I'm going to lead you out. If you'll simply stay in my presence and give me the worship and the praise that I, that I deserve and the glory that is due unto my name, there will be a fire that is leading you by the presence of God that will show you exactly where you need to go when you need to go because worship folks is about presence somebody said well I don't like songs no it ain't about songs it's about presence worship is about presence and so they centered everything around the presence of God and if you put that picture up there here's, here's a picture if you looked at the tabernacle from up high you could have put that up for me so if you're looking down at how they encamped they would have three, three tribes on the north, three on the east, three on the south, and three on the west. And if you look from above, they were actually encamped in the shape of a cross. And at the center of the cross was where the presence of God, you see that glory cloud up there. That's where the presence of God dwelt. The point is, is that every single one of us, guess what? We encamp around the name of Jesus. That's the reason we're here this morning gathered is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And when we all encamped around, around the glory of Jesus, guess what? His presence is right there in the middle. That means that any church that is worth its salt, when you come into the house, you should experience the presence and the power of God. Amen. And when it ain't here, I get worried, y'all. I got to be honest with you. I'm saying, Lord, are we getting our eyes off on something else? Are we looking at something else? Is it more about us? Is it more about entertainment? Or is it truly about you, Jesus? Is it truly about what you have called us to do and who you are? And so the high priest, if you look at this next image, now in the center down there under the glory cloud, now I stole these off Google. I didn't make these, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you got to steal stuff off Google. But in the middle, this is where the glory of God was. This is where it came out. This is from where the cloud and the fire emanated. The Ark of the Covenant. And there was a, it was a very strict procedure. The high priest would have to 
offer a sacrifice on the outside to get into the inner court where there would be uh, the candlestick, the table of, of, of showbread, and there would be incense, and he would offer incense, and when he offered incense, the curtain would peel back, and he could go into the most holy of place once a year where God dwelt. Nobody else in the world could go in there, only one man once a year into the presence of God. And Jewish history has it, and I've said this before, that they would tie a rope and a bell around the man's leg just in case he died in the presence of God, and they would drag him out because they weren't going in after him. And when he went in, he would have to apply a sevenfold, according to Leviticus, a sevenfold sprinkling of blood over the mercy seat right there between where those two angels were. Those are angels that are guarding the glory of God right there. And he would have to apply a sevenfold sprinkling of blood. Now here's what's so interesting. Jesus himself, on the day of Passover, right, he goes up and he as the high priest offers up a sacrifice greater than any sacrifice they could have offered on that day. He offers up his own blood to end all sacrifices as the high priest. And when he does that, what is so beautiful is that the, the veil, he says it is finished and the veil tears from top to bottom as if to say, guess what, y'all? Anybody who will come to God through Jesus no longer has to have fear of dropping dead. You come into the presence of God now and you will live and there's free access to anybody who will come through Jesus Christ and his blood sacrifice. Amen. You can give a golf clap this morning if you want. Yeah, that was like... Somebody made a 15-footer. I mean, we're working there. We're getting there. So, so under, it, it, within the Ark of the Covenant, and I love this too because that sevenfold sprinkling of blood, do you know that Jesus, on his way to the cross, there were seven different stations where he lost blood from them plucking out his beard, from them whipping his back, from them putting the nail of thorns on his head to ultimately them putting the cross in his hands and the, and the spear in his side seven times, representing that sevenfold sprinkling of blood. If you go back to that image for me. So in that image, see, there was, there was three things. The stone tablets, which were the Ten Commandments, that represents God's direction. Guess what, y'all? God gives us laws to give us direction. Laws are a good thing. It keeps us in check. Lawlessness is evil. That's what the Bible says, right? I read it. It works. There is the, the pot of manna, which represents God's provision. Because in the wilderness, they didn't trust God, but He always provided exactly what they needed when they needed. And Aaron's rod that budded, that was under the mercy seat, because Aaron's rod represented the authority and the protection of God, because He, he provided for them leadership. But guess what? When God gave us the Ten Commandments, you know what we did? We sinned against God, and we worshipped a golden calf. Then whenever He brought us the hidden manna, we despised it. We said, God, we don't want your provision. You've left us to die out here in the wilderness. And we rebelled against him once again. And then whenever God put authority in place with Moses and Aaron, we said, we don't want that authority. They took too much on themselves and they rebelled against their authority. It represents the fact that our sinfulness, our rebe rebellion, our iniquities, guess what? God puts it under the mercy seat and he says it's covered in the blood of Jesus. See, this is why the world needs to understand the law of God. Because the law of God brings you to a place where you see Jesus for who He is, but the law of God brings you to a place where you recognize, I'm guilty. I've sinned against God. This is where I have committed sin against a holy God. But guess what? Now that you realize your need for a Savior, you'll say, Jesus, I need you. Will you please save me? 
And you'll confess your sin and you'll find forgiveness and healing and redemption and He will apply the blood to your life and guess what? The glory of God will come down and fill you up in that place and now you can worship freely because you've been cleansed of your past sins. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. He wants us, He invites us into this place of worship. And so you see the tabernacle. Now for years, I'm going to get to the tent last, but... But after they got through the wilderness, they're trying to establish Israel. They don't have a tabernacle or a temple during David's time for some time. Finally, Solomon, David's son, builds a temple. And I want to get into that because the temple was one of the most majestic buildings that had ever been built at that time. The Queen of Sheba came to the temple and saw all of the worshipers and everybody and all their wisdom. And it says that it took her breath. And I believe that if we truly as the people of God worship God the way that He's called us to, that the world will come in and see it and it will take their breaths away. And I believe that just like the Queen of Sheba, I believe that over this church, I believe we have a gift for worship. We have, we have worship nights and the reason we have it is because we want to experience the glory of God. We've got great singers and we've got great worship leaders, but I can tell you this right now, and I pray to God and I believe that all of them have the same hearts. It is not for you to come and be an audience and a spectator and watch them sing well. Worship is not about entertainment. Worship is about your heart toward God. And so when you come in, it's not about focusing on how good they can sing or how good they can't sing. It's about legitimately letting them, gathering with them to worship the one true God and let His presence settle in down here among us. And so the temple of God, Solomon's temple, right? It, along with the tabernacle, showed us how to worship. Now let me give you three quick things. See, in the temple and in the tabernacle, worship required a sacrifice. You couldn't come into the tabernacle. You couldn't come into the temple unless you had a sacrifice. It wasn't going to happen. I wonder how many of you this morning you thought about the sacrifice that you were going to bring this morning. Do you know that the default position of worship that I found is passivity. We don't come in thinking, how do I actively engage in worship this morning and offer God a true sacrifice? No, we think, it's Sunday, I'm going to get through this. Amen. Right? Y'all going to laugh at me or you're, like, you're offended. I'm tired on Sunday mornings too, y'all, but you know what? I'm gonna, I get in here, I'm tired. I'm worried about different things that's going on around me, but I know that I've got to give the praise that is due unto His name. And so I lift up my hands and I say, Lord, I worship you. I give you the glory that you deserve because this ain't about me or how I'm feeling this morning. This is about you and I give you the glory and I'm lifting up my sacrifice unto you in this house. And when He sees that sacrifice, He gets interested because you could not even enter into worship without a sacrifice. And that's why many of us, we never in, enter into it. Secondly, worship requires our best. If you were going to worship, you couldn't just go get any old lamb out of the flock. You had to get a lamb that was without spot and without blemish. You had to bring your best. Here's what's funny to me. We will give our best. Our kids will give their best to a team, a, a sports team or a group. They'll give their best to everything else, but we're not teaching our families how to give their best to God in worship. I'm, not, I'm all about you giving your best to the things that you're doing out there in the world. Give your very best, but don't give your best out there and then come in here and give God your leftovers. I'm preaching this morning. Y'all ain't shouting as loud as I'm preaching. Thirdly, worship requires our generosity. When Solomon offered up sacrifices when he dedicated the temple, he didn't say, you know what, I'm going to give a little bit right here. Won't we offer up a couple of sheep to the Lord? Let's not get too hasty. We're going to need them later. He offered up 144,000 sacrifices. 
And I bet if Peter had showed up, they'd have arrested everybody in the place. It looked like animal cruelty everywhere. But that's how they did it back then, y'all. It was about the blood. And thank God that Jesus shed his blood, that you ain't got to bring your dog in here this morning or any sheep that you find on the road. We get to offer the sacrifice of our worship and our praise unto the Most High God because there was a blood that ended all ritual sacrifices. And he said, I want something new. I want something different. But it requires our generosity. 2 Samuel 24, 24. I want you to think about this when you come into the house of God to worship. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord. Lord my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. This guy told David, he said, David, there's a plague. You need to offer a sacrifice to God. Stop the plague. He said, but here, I don't want you to pay for it. You're the king. I'll give you the sacrifices. He said, no, I am not offering to the Lord God that which costs me nothing. And sometimes we bring to the Lord that which has cost us absolutely nothing. And he wants you to say, he, he sees the sacrifice, y'all. Matter of fact, in the Old Covenant, if you read over and over again, when worship transpires, when worship takes place, the fire of heaven always fell on the sacrifice. If there was no sacrifice, the fire did not fall. And the reason fire does not fall, and when I talk about fire, I'm talking about the love of God. I'm talking about the holiness of God. I'm talking about the purity and the power of God. I'm talking about God breaking people and transforming us right here in, in our midst. And I'm talking about that kind of fire. And it doesn't fall because when he looks at us, he sees no sacrifice. It's good this morning, isn't it? But the default setting in worship is passivity. You know, when God says, hey, lift a shout of praise, He doesn't say, hey, extroverted ones, lift up a shout of praise. There ain't nobody in this building more introverted than I am. You say, but you get up and preach. That's the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be public. I don't like to be... I like things calm. I like things not loud. I don't like to be seen. I have to go have about three to four hours of me trying to clear my mind every morning after I get up here and speak in front of you all because I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. I'm introverted. But I obey Scripture when it comes to worship and praise and I lift my hands and I shout unto the Lord and I sing and I give Him the glory that's due unto His name. It ain't got nothing to do with your personality. So here's my last one. So we've got, we got the tabernacle, we've got the temple. They showed us how to worship, but the tent of David shows us the heart of worship. The tent was small and simple. And see, the tabernacle, early on in Exodus, and as they were going through the wilderness, it was set up. They had the glory of the Lord there. But there came a time when David was going to war trying to establish Israel and Jerusalem, and they didn't have a tabernacle. And they didn't yet have a temple because it was not yet built. And so there was this in-between season and all they had was the Ark of the Covenant in a little tent sitting somewhere in Jerusalem. And for 40 years, that, that Ark of the Covenant was housed. And we just saw that picture of the Ark of the Covenant. But this was represented the felt, personal, experiential presence of God that would come. And here's the thing. People say, well, you know, it's not, it ain't about experience. Let me tell you something. God is a God who wants to be experienced. It ain't about just having mental knowledge either. You understand what I'm saying? We need to know Scripture, but Scripture invites you into a relationship, and when you experience the real, powerful, personal, felt presence of God. When I experienced the real presence of God, my addiction started to break. 
When I experienced the real presence and love of God, love wasn't just a doctrine on a paper. It was a felt experience from a God that loved me. And it happened in the place of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant represents that worship where the real presence of God is. And I love it because when Samuel was alive, they would go to war against the Philistines. So they're in this in-between time of the tabernacle and the temple. They got the Ark of a Covenant in a tent. And they're just trying to figure out what to do until they get it established, right? And they go to war against the Philistines, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, they steal it, and they put it in the house of their false god named Dagon in 1 Samuel 5. Dagon was a fish god. He was half fish, half man. They put the Ark of the Covenant by the fish god Dagon, and when they come in the following morning, guess what? Dagon had fallen on his face prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. Because can I tell you that even false gods will bow in the presence of the true God. They said, man, we need to figure something out here. We, so they set Dagon back up. They come back the following morning, and when they came back the next morning, Dagon had fell down on his face again because now the fish... God had failed before the presence of the man God, Jesus Christ. But this time his head was broken off and his arms were broken off. And I need you to understand this because this is an important factor. Because of what Jesus has done, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you are carrying, if you've got an addiction that you cannot break, don't stay away from the presence of God until you get it fixed. Come into the presence of God and keep coming into the presence of God and slowly but surely the demons and the idols that have a hold of you will bow to the name of Jesus. Their hands will break off. The power of their head will break off and you will be set free in the presence of God. I've seen it happen too many times. There are people that have struggled. I've seen it too many times. They know they're struggling. They've got addictions but they don't let condemnation keep them from worshiping God. They come in and give Him the glory anyway and say, God, I'm struggling. I confess my sin. I need your help. And they start worshiping Jesus and the presence of God shows up and manifests in their lives and they begin to find freedom until it all breaks off. And so this is why worship is so important. And we ain't keeping nobody out because Jesus has torn the veil and said, let everybody in. Well, well but Clay, don't they got to repent? They come into the presence of God, they're going to repent. I heard a lot of preachers say, you need to quit doing this, you need to quit doing that. Guess what? I didn't listen to them. But when I had a taste of the presence of God, I no longer had a taste for those other things that they'd been preaching against. And so what you need is more than just a preacher or me telling you to not do this. You need a relationship with Jesus. You say, well, I don't believe what you're saying, preacher. Read the Word of God. Develop a relationship with Jesus. His presence will flood your life. And slowly but surely, I guarantee you, He will change your mind. Matter of fact, He'll give you a new heart and a new mind. And everything changes in the presence of God. And they said, well, boys, we've got to get that ark back to Jerusalem. There's power in it. So they're hauling the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. David's saying, we got to get it back. They put it on a cart with an ox carrying it. And as they're going, the cart starts to tip over. And the Ark of the Covenant's falling over. And this guy named Uzzah, if you're having a child, good name, he reaches out, touches the Ark of the Covenant to stabilize it, and he dies. And David gets mad. He's like, well, we're trying to move this back to Jerusalem, God, and you just let a man die like that. Now, here's something you got to understand. Back in the Old Covenant, they weren't under grace like we were. You couldn't just, you can't, and here's the thing, you still can't just touch the holiness of God like that. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a prescription. This is like what I was saying. This is like saying you're a worshiper of God, but you adopt all of the mentality of the world. You can't touch the glory of God like that. They touch the glory of God. He dropped dead. David gets upset. He said, boys, don't touch it. We may all die because that thing's holy. They set that thing in Obed-Edom's yard. Obed-Edom, guess who he was? He was a Philistine. He wasn't even a Jew. They set the thing in Obed-Edom's yard. That presence of God sitting out in his yard. He goes out one Sunday morning. I'm adding this. This ain't in there. He's drinking coffee on his porch. He sees the glory of God. He said, I'm going to worship that God. <laughs> Over the course of months, he begins to be blessed beyond measure. Why? Because the presence of God is at his house. You won't find blessings. Some of you, you're depressed, you're broken, you're struggling. Start, start turning some worship music on in your living room. Start worshiping God right in your living room. And all of a sudden, that presence starts to release favor. And he's so abundantly blessed that some servants come to David and say, David, Obed-Edom's over there with the Ark of the Covenant in his yard. The presence of God is manifest. He's blessed beyond measure. David says, we got to get that thing back. We need that. We need that presence. So he takes his guys... They go and they get it and they say, we got to be careful this time. we got to do this thing God's way. And every six steps, they stop and they offer a sacrifice. And I love this because six is the number of man. Six is the number that says you cannot do things on your own. You must submit your pride of thinking you know what's right to the God who does. Every six steps they stopped and said, this ain't about us, God, it's about you. And on the seventh step, they offered a sacrifice. Seven is the number of perfection. Seven represents Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice because David got a vision of the fact that no long, one day, there's going to be a day that we will no longer have to offer blood sacrifices because there's going to be a perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And when he got a revelation of that, as they come into Jerusalem, the Bible says he began to dance before the Lord with all of his might in a linen ephod. So he's just down here going off. And somebody be like, well, he, that, that's distracting. Uh, and and I, I don't know what he's doing. And his wife, he got a wife up front, up in the house, looks down, him dancing in a linen ephod. And she says, oh my gosh, I can't believe my husband would dance. Like and she calls him out and says, David, what are you doing dancing like that? Looking so shameful in front of all the people. And he said, look, I'm going to tell you something, woman. I don't know if you were looking or anybody else was looking because it didn't have anything to do with about anything that anybody thought about me. This was about God and about what God thought about me. And he said, guess what? If when it comes to Jesus, I can become even more undignified than this. He said, because when it comes down to it, what God wants is not just blood sacrifices. He wants a heart of worship. So you know what he did after he brought it in? He gets, he gets a, a 24 choirs filled with 12 people. 288 people in his choir. I'd like to get 288 up here, y'all. <laughs> he had four worship leaders. And the Bible says that there were eight men in the Bible who were as wise or more who were as wise as Solomon you know what all of them were worship leaders in the presence of God all where did they receive their wisdom from staying in the presence of God day in day out he sets up a tent he ain't got a fancy building. It don't have gold overlay. All it's got is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents Jesus right in the center. And 24-7, he's got people in there singing songs and worshiping God. 24-7 without ceasing. You could go in any time of day. And what David realized that if you went into the presence of God, you needed to be listening. 
pretty much, not all, but most of the Psalms that were written by David and some of the others were written inside the tabernacle because they had a recorder because these men would get so filled with the Spirit in the presence of God that they would start to sing spontaneously and a recorder would write down what they were singing from which we have many of the Psalms. And they were prophetic in nature. Why? Because God was speaking in His presence. And I love this. David saw this and he put that ark back in that place. And you know, he, he wrote many of these that we talk about. Psalm 22, 3. It says, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. What David understood was that God literally shows up when His people praise Him. And when they praise Him together, guess what he says? That's a good dwelling place for me. I'm going to rest and set in that. I'm going to inhabit those praises. And you know, if you look in Scripture, nowhere does it say that they're going to rebuild the Solomon of Temple or they're, the, the, the Temple of Solomon or they're going to rebuild the Tabernacle of Moses. But it does say that the tent of David will be re rebuilt. They quote Amos in Acts 15 when the church first starts. They quote Amos and they say this. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. There are many people in our world today that believe that this right here is coming to pass prophetically more than ever before in history. Because worship, there is a worship movement, y'all. Matter of fact, there are movements all over the globe where people literally have setups where they worship, guess what, 24-7. This is the renewal of the tent of David where there is a worshiping people who believe that God dwells among and in and through a worshiping people and they're seeing 24-7 worship begin to take place once again and it was prophesied. And here's what it says. It says that whenever they begin to worship like this, like they did in the tent of David, many will see it and they will start to seek the Lord. And I'm telling you, it's such a big difference when somebody comes into the house of God, they don't know Jesus from Adam, when people are just genuinely worshiping. I remember going to a church for the first time when I was lost as a ball in high weeds. And I walked in there and I began to see people legitimately worshiping God. And yeah, my flesh said that's weird. But my spirit started to cry out and hunger and thirst and say, I want some of that. You know what I'm talking about? Your flesh will say spiritual things are weird, but your spirit is crying out on the inside saying, I want that more than anything. And all of a sudden it began to get a hold in my heart. In Psalm 27, here's what they penned while they were in the presence. He says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Some of you are going to come to worship night tonight and you're going to feel broken and depressed. And all of a sudden in the middle of worship you're going to sense the Spirit of God lift you up and set you up high upon a rock and give you a new and a fresh perspective. And you're going to sense a protection of God where he he says, I've got this. You need to quit worrying. You are in my secret place in my tabernacle. He says, now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And I love that because he says sacrifices of joy. Sometimes you come in here depressed and beat up and not want to do anything. Sometimes you just need to offer a sacrifice of joy. 
I've come in here many a Sunday morning. I'm not necessarily always filled with joy because I'm just like the rest of you all. I got flesh to deal with. I got worries. I got cares. I wonder what people are going to think. But I come into the presence of God and I say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to offer you a sacrifice of joy this morning. And all of a sudden, the presence of God begins to manifest and show up in our lives. Psalm 141 verse 2, David had another revelation. He knew that if you were in the tabernacle, you had to offer incense to get into the presence of God. He knew that there had to be an evening sacrifice. But he said, Lord, let my prayer be set before, forth before you as incense and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. He said, Lord, when I come in, I don't have any incense to burn in here, but I've got a prayer that I can lift to you. And I don't have an evening sacrifice. I don't have a bull or a goat right now, but will you receive the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice? He said, it's not about a ritual practice. It's about what's coming from the heart. And when you come in here and you lift your hands to God and you lift your prayer to God he sees that sacrifice in your heart and the fire of God shows up Amen. the glory of God shows up the presence of God shows up and so 24 7 we're to offer as a holy priesthood spiritual sacrifices to God Psalm 40 1 through 3 I'm finishing up I waited patiently for the Lord he turned to me and heard my cry he lifted me out of the slimy pit I like that. You've been in a slimy pit before. Out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. You know, when I was in a slimy pit, when I was in addiction and bondage to sin, I was, I was so critical and I was so judgmental and I judged the church and the people in it and I would stand myself up against them. But when God brought me up out of that pit and set my feet on a solid rock, I went into the church with people that I would have mocked for singing the way that they did. And son, I began to sing with my whole heart because he put a new song in my mouth. He gave me a new heart and a new mind. And I wanted nothing more than to be in the presence of God. Overwhelmed with it. If some of you all, you've been in church your whole life and you've never experienced the presence of God, I pray that you would take this as an invitation to say, I want that, God. I want your presence. I don't just want to know about you. I don't just want to have read some scripture. I want that scripture to come alive in my heart. I want your spirit to burn like fire in my heart. I want to experience your presence. And he says, that's fine. Come on in here and bring me a sacrifice. Bring me a sacrifice. I don't want the stuff you can give me. I want your heart. And the question is, are you tenting the presence of God? Or are you going to the temple? About three times a year, they go to the temple... They'd offer up a turtle dove or a goat or a bull. And they'd say, well, we took care of that. That was our ritual. We'll go. And many come to the church the same way. They treat it like the temple. I'm going, my presence here is enough. I came. I paid my dues. My ritualistic practice, going to the house. No, you're not called to come to the temple of God. You are called to be the temple of God. And when you are the temple of God, you understand that He dwells right here on the inside of you. And you need to tent the presence of God and not simply go to the temple. Jesus said, boys, I will tear down this temple, speaking of the temple, and destroy it in three days. And raise it up after three days. And they thought he was talking about the temple, but he wasn't. He was talking about his own body. Because he was saying the presence of God is going to shift from a structure that you built to those who believe in me. I'm now the new temple of the living God, and those who believe in me will be that new temple. Here's my last scripture. 
Psalm 51, David said this, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David had a revelation that at the end of the day, what God wanted was not another blood sacrifice. And Jesus came to put an end to all blood sacrifice with His precious blood. But he said, what you want, God, you want a broken heart. You want a contrite spirit. One that will humble themselves before you. And people who truly refuse to respond and worship, the only thing that they really got in their heart is pride. They want to do things their way. They don't want to do things the way that God prescribes. And He invites you to respond to Him. We carry the glory of God. And I tell you, I'm not interested. I don't know. We, we, we probably get labeled in a lot of different ways. Like maybe we're the... Maybe we're the cool church or the church that thinks they're cool or the church with lights or the church with me. I don't care about any of that. All I want to be is a people of God who worship God in spirit and in truth and people know us as the place where God dwells. I don't care if we got coffee in the sanctuary or, or if our building looks cool. I don't care about it. I care about where, whether, whether we are the people where God says, I want to dwell among those people. That's what matters to me. So worship's going to take you up higher. It's going to lead you into a deeper relationship with the Lord. And you need a relationship with Jesus. And worship first and foremost, yes, you need to respond with the lifting of your hands, with your prayer. That's why, th listen, when they would sometimes offer a sacrifice, you know where they would take it? To the altar. To the altar. They would offer the sacrifice on an altar. That's why we call the place where people bow down and worship an altar. And that's why we still call people to an altar because as, as, as inconvenient as it is to you, and I know some of, of you are older and you say, well, it hurts my knees. Well, sit right back there and create you an altar in your seat. But bring something to the Lord. Whether you do it at your seat or around this altar, He's calling you to bring Him a sacrifice. And sometimes something as simple as lifting our hands or kneeling down before God and giving us His prayer, He sees that sacrifice and He honors that sacrifice. So I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Because the most important sacrifice in our lives is not even the sacrifice that we bring, but it's the sacrifice that God gave us in sending His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And if you have not received that sacrifice and turned from your sin truly and repented and put faith in Jesus that He died so you could be forgiven and cleansed for those sins, so that you could have redemption and eternal life, now's a great time to do that. So if the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart and you're here this morning and you say, that's me, I want, I want that. I want to, to receive that sacrifice that Jesus made for me. Raise your hand just as an act of faith right here this morning. Let it be made known. Just between me, you, and God. Just between me, you, and God. I see a hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? I see another one. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. I want to pray for these two and even for the rest of us. I want you to pray right now because I want you to, to once again look at that sacrifice Jesus made for you. And I want you to respond to that sacrifice by bringing one of your own, your very own life. So Father, right now we pray and we thank you, Lord Jesus. We confess our sins to you. We ask you to forgive us of all of our sin because we believe and we confess that Jesus, you are Lord of our lives. You died on the cross for our sins and you were raised again from the dead on the third day. And Lord, not only do we turn from our sins and repent 
and renounce our sins. But God, we put our faith completely in you and we now choose to follow you. And God, we offer our bodies. Just tell him right now, say, Lord, I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. I'm offering my life as a living sacrifice unto you. And I ask you to come now with the fire of your spirit, Lord, to fill me up. Fill me up, God, to overflow and consume everything in me, God, that is not of you. I give you everything this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.